everybody. Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay, and uh, I'm here with Isaac today, and um, really fun conversation on the on the podcast today on this episode. We are talking with Margaret Feinberg. Uh, Margaret is a speaker, a Bible teacher, an author of several best-selling books, including The Organic God, The Sacred Echo, Wonderstruck, um, Scouting the Divine. Uh, her, her work has been featured in CNN, USA Today, The Washington Post, amongst other places. And her most recent book is a book called Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. And um, one of the things that Margaret does so well is she she connects seemingly disconnected things and helps us see uh, the spiritual Um, Jesus-centered significance in things that we so often think are just kind of mundane, ordinary things. And she does that in an incredible way in this book, uh, connecting our spirituality and our journey with Jesus to food and how God tells us a story through food and how the way we eat and what we eat and who we eat with um, can be transformative in our lives. And so uh, this is a really fun conversation. It'll probably make you hungry. So just, you know, be prepared. You may need to drive to done. So here is our conversation today with Margaret Feinberg. Hey, Margaret, thanks so much for being on today. Excited to be with you and Isaac. Yeah, really excited to talk to you. Um, You know, we've been following your work for a long time, and and I've seen you speak at a variety of places and read um, several of your books. And and this really comes out in your writing and in your speaking uh, as a Bible teacher and as an author. Um, You've always sort of been, it seems to me, you've always sort of been an adventurer of sorts, and that comes (laughs) out quite a bit in in your work. Uh, You're always making these really fresh, interesting connections between um, seemingly disconnected things and helping us see how God might be at work in some unexpected ways and in unexpected places. So um, Taste and See, which just uh, recently came out to book and a Bible study. Uh, you're not just an author, but I know you're passionate about the Bible and helping people really engage the story of God. Um, so you make this connection now in this book between God and food and the culinary world. So I just want to start by asking you what compelled you, what inspired you to make that connection? What kind of what kind of took you in this direction? direction. About 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Scouting the Divine, My Search for God in Wine, Wool, and Wild Honey. And I went and spent time with shepherds and beekeepers and vintners and farmers. And I opened up the Bible and I just asked, how do you read these passages, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day? And their answer changed the way that I read the Bible forever. I mean, time and time again, I found myself asking, how did I grow up in the church? How have I listened to so many sermons? How have I downloaded so many podcasts? And nobody has told me these things. Well, when I finished that project, I must have had a dozen people come up to me in a very short period of time and ask, why did you not go spend time with an olive grower? (laughs) And I thought, that is a great question. And honestly, there wasn't enough time in the writing and research of the product. But I thought, one day I am going to do that. And so I have set um, the idea for this book, Taste and See for 10 years and um, thanks to some friends who sat me down and said Margaret it is it's time to write again and I realized you know what it's time it's time to 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 write this and so with that kind of that idea of I know that that 
I have got to spend time with olive um, growers because there are so many mentions of olive and olive oil. I mean, even Jesus is the anointed one um, who who's literally he's dripping in olive oil and that healing uh, presence. I, I thought, okay, so if I'm going to go look at olives, what other foods in the Bible should I go look at? And so what I began to discover is if you start to look for food in the Bible, it literally pops and sizzles on almost every page. Mm. And there was so much food, so much abundance. I mean, literally a cornucopia throughout the scripture that I just, I narrowed it in on six different foods. And I began to look for the people who plant and process and procure them and really had an artisanal nature. That was really important to me. I, I didn't want to go to some large, you know, manufacturing plant. I wanted to, to find individual individuals who, who were just passionate about the care, the process, and the food that they were producing. You know, Isaac and I are both big fans of God and big fans of food. So <laughs> this is true. This is true. I'm a food snob. <laughs> Not a God snob, though, but certainly a food no, snob. So, yeah, yeah. So as soon as you start talking about the local fisherman or the local bread maker, I'm like, keep going. I want to know. More. I want to know the exact. Pro- How were they drying those fish that they caught? Because we could talk about the different methods of drying fish. Isaac but, is actually a stud fisherman. That's I love real. fishing. Yeah, really. And the yeah. best fish I had, uh, or for dried fish, actually, is um, similar. Uh, Lake Tanganyika in Tanzania. They just mm-hmm. dry the little fish that they catch in the sun, uh, and I don't know what it is. It's special. It's magical. Them little dried fish are are delicious. <laughs> so, like we're you know the three of us here having this conversation, we would all be categorized in our culture today as foodies. Yeah. Right? That's the word. Mm-hmm. And Margaret, in your book, you actually say that God is the original foodie, and, <laughs> which I think is like so fascinating and really interesting. Talk about that. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge I, all three of us, we are definite foodies. I'm sure a ton of listeners are foodies. We love you. Mm-hmm. But there are people who are a little intimidated by the word foodie. Mm-hmm. They feel like it, it requires this certain level of knowledge or buying just strange food from far distant places in the world. But if you actually look at the word foodie, it simply means someone who takes a particular interest in food. And I would argue that most of us take a particular interest in food, perhaps us a little more. I mean, let's be honest, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner tomorrow. But if you start to look at the scripture, I think what you'll see is that God has been taking a particular interest in food since the beginning of time. Mm. That that our God literally crafted the garden like this Zagat-rated, you know, five-star Yelp buffet where he he seeded the world with tangerines and and pomegranates and and greens and and beans and, and just this incredible vegetables and fruit and then he lays out that buffet and he invites the original couple in essence to come and to enjoy and i believe then in the coolness of the day the that adam and that first woman eve that they did not just walk and talk with god but i think they noshed and nibbled I think they were reaching for figs. I think that they were in there and they would, you know, pass by a pomegranate and rich it, rip it open in its deliciousness. And so it's intriguing that the original sin would involve food. And there's a part of me that says, you know, well, from that moment, if, if that is so bad, then surely God would push food to the side. You know, surely that would be something that we'd have to avoid, etc. And instead, what I see is God keeps using food as this emblem, as this metaphor, as this image imagery to draw our hearts closer 
closer to him. I mean, even to think that God could have fashioned us, that, that we just like licked stones and ate rocks in order to survive. And instead, our good and generous and loving God literally imbued us with, with tens of thousands of taste buds and taste receptors so that we could taste this wide range of flavors and, and these experiences that, that in essence, I believe that food becomes God's love made edible. And so throughout the text, what we start seeing it is these images of prophets and poets using food imagery to alert people of how far or how good they are from God or how close they are. And at the same time, revealing that when Jesus comes, I mean, the very son of God associates himself with food stuff, the the bread of life, the um, the vine, the, these uh, these he, he you know again back to the olive oil, the 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 sense of of one who is anointed, and that even he describes that that when the church is birthed, that one of the things we are to do is to break bread together. He could have done anything to call us to an act of remembrance. It could have been the washing of the feet. It could be going to an upper room. Instead, he says we are to break bread and drink wine. And when we reach the book of Revelation, we find that our God, you know, is going to, to culminate all of this, not in a series of do's and don'ts, not in, you know, some sort of, of limited activity, but with a feast. To think that our God has already mailed out the invitations for the biggest, best banquets of all time, inviting humanity humanity into this incredibly rich relationship with him to do what to sit and to eat that Jesus describes that he knocks at the doors of our heart what to do a renovation or to do a repo no but to come in and eat with us hmm. and so that's why I think God he is the original foodie he is one who takes a particular interest in food just as he takes that particular interest in you and me the OG foodie it's the old school <laughs> one the um there's a theologian named Scott Hawney has a quote he, that he says often, he, but it's kind of to what you're, you're pointing to. He says, before the New Testament was ever a document, it was a meal. Or better put, before the New Covenant was a document, it was a meal um, in, in the Eucharist. It's interesting, there's, um, you know, the people always mention this dealing with marriage, but there is a little bit of a, of a connection as you're talking that I see where in Ephesians, Paul's talking about marriage serving as a signpost uh, a pointer assigned to the ultimate reality of the heavenly marriage. So it, the, the institution of marriage functions as a as a signal to something greater and beyond itself. And it kind of as you're articulating kind of the thesis, in in a sense, food. And I'm not comparing the goodness of food to marriage or the the gospel, but but food. Then God gives us, as you said, taste buds, and we are tasting goodness that is also sustaining us. Mm. And in that, then that language is the same language used for God. Not only am I, as the, the, the title of your book, The Tasting, it's the seeing the goodness of God. And wrapped together, you're seeing the aesthetic or the tasting of something good, but you're also receiving that which is your daily sustenance. Mm. And so it's like, you can just reflect on, I am daily bread. That alone has like infinite implications that you could just go on forever with. It's true. And I think there is all this, this idea that we live in a modern age where largely food has been commodified. It is simply fuel. It is something that we, I mean, to think, I mean, I purchase most of my food in boxes and plastic yeah. containers, and that's just weird. 
right? I mean, to an agrarian context in the scripture where people are are going out, they are planting the seed. As Jewish, they would pray over every seed that was planted in the ground. They were dependent on God for the one who, you know, hung the stars and spun the sun and brought in the seasons. They were the ones who were praying every day for the weather that would allow them to bring in a crop that would help sustain them from for just that next year. And then they had to portion it out in order to survive. And so so they recognized with every bite that God was their sustainer. He was their provider. He was he was the one that they were dependent on. Whereas I just go to, yeah. you know, my local grocery store and stuff a cart and don't even think second a uh, second time about it. And I think that's part of the shift of taste and see that every meal, every bit of food, it is the blessing, it is the provision, it is the grace of God that we are that we are imbibing, that we are chewing on that there is this this love of god this provision that is a visceral Mm. a a visceral intaking yeah i i love that thought uh, i want to hear you talk a little bit more about that because coming to our cultural moment now um just extending uh what you just said it's not just that we you know buy our food in plastic bags and boxes but it's also the speed and efficiency that we value so much when it comes to food, you know, the, 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 the very idea of fast food is such a modern cultural phenomenon that we can have fast food, which isn't really quite food. You know, you drive <laughs> through a drive through and they give you this amalgamation of things that, yeah. <laughs> you know, that yeah. we call food. But, um, although I am guilty of, you know, cheeseburgers, tasting and, the goodness yeah, of the in and out, but, um, but it's fascinating, you know, when you talk about, for, for most of human history, when people talked about food, the growing, the preparation, the cooking, and the sharing of food, it was, it, it's a much longer extended uh, communal journey that you take together. And in some ways, it's still communal. That's one of the really beautiful things that your um, book does, is it reveals to us the picture of of, you know, the stuff that we eat off of our plates actually came from a place. And there were many hands and many people and many stories involved in getting that food uh, to us. We just happen to live in a culture where the connection points between all of those people that made this meal possible, those connection points um, are just unseen. You know, I don't see the people who uh, grew um, the plants that uh, turned into my salad or whatever. So talk a little bit more about that. I guess more, I mean, talking to culture today, like what do you think we're missing in the way we eat? Like what are the things we're, we're missing out on spiritually in the way we eat and the way we think about food? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. I think part of it is, is first of all, recognizing that again, food is a gift every bite is a gift. This is not something that you bought with the earning of your money for your consumption. This is the gift of a good and loving God. And that transition in thinking starts to shift the way that we approach every meal. I think it calls us to become more intentional. I think it calls us that if possible, if you've got a local farmer's market, you know, maybe based on your budget, you can't buy every grocery there, but you can probably afford a small bag of apples or you know whatever the the fresh head of lettuce and support those local farmers and not just go in and support them but also talk to them if you want to be really bold invite yourself to their farm 
Go and see what they're doing. Understand where your food is coming from. I think secondly, it's an invitation for us to, to slow down and, and to, to recognize that, that if food is a gift, then that means it's not something to be eaten super quickly, which I'll just be honest, is a brutal tendency of mine. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm on the go, I stuff it down. There is no thought. But, but in some ways, that, that is, that is uh, it's such a loss of that connection for God. I know one of the things that, that we've started doing just real practically is when we pray, I think uh, if you pray before a meal, um, that, that not just to give the same broke prayer, but to actually give thanks for all the people involved and saying that idea of thank you, God, for your son, your seasons that grew this food. Thank you for the soil. Thank you for the farmer who planted it. Thank you for those who harvested. Thank you for those who drove the truck to the store. Thank you for those who stocked the shelves. Thank you for those who packaged. Thank you for the ability to eat this. And all of a sudden, just that process of a very simple prayer of acknowledgement and thanksgiving again, starts to shift the way that we approach the table. It, it, it goes back to that recognition. This is the gift of a good and loving God. Yeah, there's, uh, I shouldn't say this because it's going to upset a lot of people who, so don't be upset people who are listening. I'm going to take a shot at how you pray. This is really bad right now. Shouldn't be doing this. But it's like, there's a prayer that we all pray. We've all done it. I've prayed, but so it's not that big of a deal. But when people pray for food, they'll ask God to have the food nourish their bodies. Hmm. And that's fine. I get it. We've all prayed like that. I'm, I don't, I'm not attacking you too much, but there's a sense in which God has already made that food good. It's already good. It's going to nourish your body. It's not something that's bad that now needs to be blessed by God in order to serve its function. It's, it's You're talking about when people say, bless this food. Bless this food yeah. and help it nourish sure. our body. Yeah, yeah. And when Jesus, we know, uh, we know what Jesus prayed before he, he ate when it says, and then Jesus, you know, Bless the food or bless God. He prayed sure. what every Jewish person prayed before they uh, Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe or King of the cosmos. It's a blessing of of the uh, you're declaring the awesomeness of God and thanking Him for provision because the food is already good and it's going to do something. And so there's this beautiful idea that you're talking about, Margaret. That's saying like, no, just stop and understand this. It's like the air in your lungs. Every breath is a gift. Every, every day, every breath is grace, and every piece of food you eat is grace and the goodness of God manifested in something that you can put in your mouth and physically taste. Like, this is like, in a sense, is magical. It's like, no, you can actually taste different things on your tongue. Like, if you ever yeah. reflect on your senses, it's a bizarre thing. It's like, I could taste all these different different things, and so I would, I would just echo that and say, like, man, we need to stop slow down and be thank thankful thank thankful for the people there one of the other things that that you mentioned is about eating together is there's all kinds of research that shows just if families eat together like they have dinner t together and they talk over the meal that all, the, the children the kids are going to be more apt to 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 do better at school, to do better socially, to do better in all these different areas and somehow in our culture we're not doing that like we just it's stopped eating together yeah, it is such an incredible loss uh, because, again, even this food, even this deliciousness should be a communal activity. Let me give you an example. Uh, when, um, when I went to Israel, uh, one of the things that I saw was that I, I stayed with a family. I went to go fish on the Galilee, which is an extraordinary adventure we can get into later. But 
while I was there, I, I, I was with a, a family and all of their workers in a restaurant, and we would all eat together. And in that, we would talk, we would share, we would go, oh, this is so delicious. There was this sharing, there was this, this intentionality, and we got to know each other deeper around the table, just like we do today. And one of the things I remember about that was I would notice that after the meal, that they would uh, leave the bread because there was always focaccia, the most amazing bread on the tables. And, and so everybody would clear their tables or their, their other plates and stuff, but leave that. And I just, I was the outsider. And so I thought it'd be so helpful, but I went and I picked up all the leftovers and threw them away. And I did this day after day until finally I concluded I, I and I thought, why is nobody else doing this? And that's when uh, Mama Vered, she explained to me, she goes, we never throw away bread because it is sacred. And so it will always be fed to the birds. It will be fed to the animals. If it's good bread and we can pass it on to the poor, we will do that. Mm. But there was this recognition as a community gathering around the table that, that the food that they were eating was sacred. I know in America, we, we average almost 40 to 50% waste of food in our nation. You think oh, about wow. one out of, I think, four kids is hungry in America and we're wasting almost half of our food. It, it's mm. mind boggling. And, and so part of it is that sacred recognition of the value of food, of the purpose of, of the gift of it. But it's also, I think about step, taking a step back and thinking about how we're gathering around the table with our family, with our friends. For my husband and I, we've just gotten really practical and really intentional. If, when you guys come to our home, we can't wait. And you come <laughs> in the front door, we're going to ask you to take off your shoes. That's just how we roll in our house. And then if you come to a meal, there's going to be a charcuterie, uh, a plate of meats and cheeses, pretty simple. Anybody can put it together, low cost, in the center of the kitchen because we know the kitchen is the heart of the home. It's where people are naturally more vulnerable. We're inviting you into that place. And we'll sit around and we'll talk for maybe 45 minutes or an hour, and then we'll transition to, to dinner. And when you eat dinner with us at our home, unless you have a physical perhaps impairment, we will eat it not at the dining table, but in the living room. Again, where it feels like family, where it feels most like home and sit and talk later into the day. But one of the things that I've started doing that has transformed everything is that I used to stress out about the perfect meal, all of the food. I, I, I still love great food. I want to serve you something yummy, but I'm more concerned about the prayer that goes into that meal. So long before you come to our house, I will have been praying individually for you. And I will have been saying, Holy Spirit, I know you are here, but I want you to show up in each of our lives intentionally. God, pull up a chair. Jesus, pull up a chair. Dine with us. And raising the expectation that God is going to meet us in that meal. Because I believe that when we gather around that table, whether it's parents and their kids or family, that all of us are hungry for something so much deeper than the feel, than the food. We, we hunger to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. And, and all of us can be curators, spiritual curators of creating that space where we're we are engaging in more than just a meal. We are encountering God around the table. Hey, taking a quick break from our conversation with Margaret to tell you about some of our partners in ministry. Uh, Western Seminary, which is our home, has been um, a partner with us in the Regeneration Project since day one. Uh, 
is an incredible school with an incredible faculty and opportunities to earn graduate degrees in a variety of fields. Uh, we would highly recommend checking them out if you're even remotely interested. You can go to westernseminary.edu. And if you're looking for an undergraduate program to study theology or missions or Christian leadership, um, check out our partners at Eternity Bible College. Uh, their website is eternitybiblecollege.com. And we say this all the time, an incredible school uh, with incredible learning opportunities, but one of the greatest things about them, they are committed to making sure that their students graduate debt-free. So it's really affordable and they work with you to, to make it happen. So check them out. And uh, we also want you you to know we have another regeneration event coming up um, on Friday, March 29th in Santa Cruz, California. Uh, if you're in the area, it's a one night event featuring Andy Crouch. And Andy Crouch is, um, you guys probably know him from his most recent book, TechWise Family, but he's a prolific author and editor and actually a musician and worship leader. And we are talking to him uh, about something called the TechWise Church, and we'll be exploring how technology, digital technology, and the internet age is affecting, uh, in profound ways, our ecclesiology, the way we think about and approach and even do and practice um, church. And it's going to be a really provocative, insightful, thought-provoking uh, evening of conversation and dialogue. So you can go to our website, regenerationproject.org, and get all of the info there. If you are in the Bay Area of California, especially, I would recommend going and getting your ticket now. It's a free event, but the seating is incredibly limited because it's in this really cool little coffee shop in Santa Cruz, like super cool vibe. It's going to be great. So um, go to regenerationproject.org, get all the info for the event, get your ticket, join us March 29th. And of course, the website has all sorts of other uh, resources as well. So um, there you go. That's what we've got going on. Uh, really good stuff. We hope to see you soon. And now back to our conversation with Margaret Feinberg. There's a word our audience can Google, a triclinium. It's the type of table Jesus most likely would have ate at at the, um, the Last Supper. But essentially, it's it's a big U-shaped, three-sided. That's what it's called, tri, triclinium. But you're basically relaxing and lounging together Um for a couple hours, eating food and, and just talking with each other. Of course, with the Last Supper, they sang songs. We know they sang songs. We know which song they would have sang from the Psalms as a Passover meal. And so when you picture Jesus eating with people, you don't picture him at a table up tight like in the the, the famous uh, Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, right. And you picture re relaxation with friends, singing of songs, telling of stories, eating food for an hour and a half, taking your time. And in that, man, like you said, there's... It's not just physical acts. There's something spiritual and sacred taking place when you're doing all of those things at the same time. And we're just, we've just lost it as a culture. We're not doing that. Yeah. Isaac mentioned the Passover meal. Um, Margaret, you have an experience in the Passover meal. Uh, I'm sure you've had many experiences, but you um, tell a story in the book. What I mean, talk about that generally, the significance of the Passover meal. You, you mentioned it briefly in the beginning, right, that um, Christ leaves us a meal 
by which to remember and celebrate um, his continued presence in our lives. Um, but what does that meal mean to you? And, and talk a little bit about your experience of that meal, maybe what it can teach us today. I think we're already sort of hinting at it, but what, what that meal in particular can teach us today about um, the way we eat and what, how we eat and, and, and what we eat um, can teach us about God and what he's up to. You know, I, um, in Taste and See, I went, you know, 410 feet down into a salt mine. I fished on the Galilee. I, I brought an olive harvest in Croatia. Uh, I, I found one of the world's foremost experts on grains, ancient grains at Yale University and a premier fig farmer. And with each of these individuals, you know, opening up the scripture. But when I went to fish on the Galilee, I tell the story in the book, I met this wild character named Ido who helped connect me with fishermen. And, and I only went to Israel for four days to, to study fishing. And at the end of those four days, he said you must stay it was the it was the you know Thursday before Passover and he said you must stay and celebrate with my family and I thought uh wait a second you a Jewish man and family are inviting me to celebrate Passover yes yes is the answer to all of those things and and this was a mixed bunch there was extended family some were religious Jews some were uh you know had been orthodox others were just you know, cultural. And, and so that was the, the scene and the table laid out and, and it's all in Hebrew and my Hebrew is, is, is super rough. And so, you know, I followed along in English, but what I saw in that moment was this family coming together. You know, we ate the bitter herbs, uh, the, the lamb shank set on the plate, all those different elements of the Passover and the readings and the songs and the cups of wine, many cups of wine were served as we, we went through this meal, but there was this moment at the end and I'll never forget it the kids had gone out and looked for the um, the hidden bread mm -hmm. and they'd found it and it was absolute chaos and they're making tons of noise and all of it and then they slip out to play and we've just been stuffed with a non-dairy cheesecake because you can't eat dairy and it's just the most I mean just feast of feasts mm -hmm. and at the end of that meal Mama Vered came up to me and she's just this older delightful woman and she looked at me and she goes margaret do you know why we do this and i said uh because it's the passover <laughs> and she goes no no and she points to the kids at the chairs at the end of the table as mm. they were out playing and she says we do this because they must know where they come from they mm. must know where they come from this is our story from slavery to freedom mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was shaking inside mm. when she said those words, because this culinary exploration, this journey, understanding the symbolism of food in that meal and this journey of God and his transition and how it parallels the Eucharist and the breaking of bread and the blood. This, this is your and mine. This is our story yeah. of slavery to freedom. And, and that's why I think it's so important to start studying and understanding food in the Bible. That's what I was so passionate about in this project is all of a sudden you you will start to see the tables you gather around different. You will start to see the olive oil representing the healing power of God. You will start to see the bread and the, the representative of being on high alert that the yeast of the Pharisees would seep into us. That you will start seeing fish and recognizing God's miraculous provision. And that sometimes the last place you want to go is the very first place God meets you. And so suddenly the table again moves away from commodity and consumption to a rich, deep, encounter with God. What you just said, it, it strikes me as you, you don't even really have to be a Christian um, or a religious person to understand the power and the impact of that, what, what the Passover is doing. Food 
undeniably tells a story, you know, and um, I, I think everyone's got these stories. I, I have that my wife makes this. <clears throat> my wife is Chinese American and uh, her grand, they had three generations of their family living in the same house when she was growing up. So her grandparents lived with her when she was young. And to this day, my wife makes this noodle dish with like black bean sauce and vegetables and, and mm. meat. And um, it's her grandmother's recipe. And she mentions it every time she mm-hmm. talks about her grandmother. And we make that dish for our two young children now who never knew their great grandmother, yeah. but they're hearing the story while they eat the food. And in some really beautiful, profound way, they're tasting the story of their yeah. own history. Yeah. And there's something viscerally uh, transformative about that. And that is the Passover in the most beautiful, profound the, way. The food is attached to the narrative, and the narrative is attached to a history. And we know the history and the narrative shapes identity. Yeah. So all. You go from eating a noodle dish and all of a sudden somehow identity and narrative yeah, are being funny. shaped to, to be infused in those kids. And then you go like, my daughter's going to do this with her kids. Yeah, right. And to think that God essentially passed down a recipe and a menu yeah. to lead us to freedom. I mean, that's that's just, what? Yeah. What? That's <laughs> oh, amazing. Uh, Margaret, as we sort of wrap up here, I, I just want to ask you to speak to everybody listening. And we have a wide variety of people who listen. Um, but I think everyone can relate to this, you know, in our busy, chaotic, go, go, go culture. We've already mentioned this. You know, we don't sit down to eat together and to eat well and to eat thoughtfully and to eat gratefully um, nearly enough. So maybe just share a word of encouragement. You've already done that a little bit, but just to wrap up, share a word of encouragement or challenge to everybody listening uh, about why this, why eating and eating in this way um, can be and should be such uh, a life-changing practice and maybe even some some practical ways that we can carve out more space in our lives to do this uh, regularly. You know, the the goal of a meal, I, I believe, is to, to, again, experience each other, to, to really do life together. And there, I love social media. I love online. But, but that is no trade. You know, whatever that text, whatever that thing that gives you that little mental scientific boost in your brain is no exchange for sitting across from a table, seeing someone face to face, reading their facial gestures, Mm. sharing food, tasting, talking about the sources, talking about your own life. Uh, One of the things that I love to do now when we have people over is I'll slip in this question and you can phrase it in any spectrum of who you're talking to. But where recently have you seen the higher power, the divine, God, Jesus, whatever that looks like, moving in your life. And it's a simple question, but I have been amazed at the ways that that will often unlock people's heart just to share where they're at. Uh, Another question is just asking, you know, I'm just curious, like I have needs, you have needs. What is the greatest need in your life right now? You know, just real simple questions, conversation starters, and you can get them at the Margaret Feinberg site, but, but they can start to unlock those kind of deeper conversations, those, 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 those little portals that can create doors to, to be vulnerable and to enter in that space where, where you help create a safe space and, and shame just scurries away. Mm-hmm. 
So I think for those who, who want to, to start experiencing this rich table life, starting this table revolution, I would encourage you, don't get caught up in perfection. You do not need to spend nine hours cooking some meal. You can get takeout. Mm-hmm. You can do order in. Hot pockets and, go a long way, man. Hot pockets. You got it. Go you got way. it. She's and a good yeah, sit in your living room, sit in a different room, gather people around to be and to create that safe space. Spend more time and attention on your prayer and your intentionality of making people feel comfortable and feel loved than whatever is served on the menu that night. Uh, secondly, I would encourage you that that as you gather, uh, that, that you just, you prepare your heart with that place of prayer and saying, God, we want you to lead the conversation and, and come and expect it because it will make you more alert to what the spirit it may be doing in that moment. Um, And third, something that we practice is when you have a little extra at the end of the night, send it home with that person as a gift. Hmm. It is the simplest thing, but just even a few green beans or a little slab of meat, when they go the next day to eat that as leftovers, they will taste and see that goodness and remember again. Hmm. It's really great. Margaret, um, you you have this incredible gift. You do it all the time in your writing and in you're speaking of connecting things that we so often uh, just neglect and bypass, uh, and you infuse it with this depth of meaning and significance that I think is just so helpful. So, And you certainly do that with Taste and See with the book and the Bible study. Um, so let people know—I mean, this is your most recent work, but you have so much stuff out there. Um, let people know where they can find your work, uh, not, not just Taste and See, but all the other stuff you've done. Uh, as well as just connect with you, maybe online. Um, where, where can people find you? You know what? You can simply go to margaretfeinberg.com. Uh, you'll find uh, all kinds of resources, uh, books, Taste and See, the Bible study, Scouting the Divine, other projects there. You can also find those on Amazon or your local retailer. Um, also, Margaret Feinberg, you're going to find I just launched a brand new podcast called The Joycast, nice. talking about this theme of gathering around the table and how to be funnier at a table and how to uh, to love when somebody is suffering from you across the table and, and to enter into the space that is so holy and so precious in profound ways. There you go. Awesome. So go to margaretfeinberg.com, find all the stuff there. Margaret, thank you again so much for your work and uh, continued continued adventures to you. And we're, we're looking forward to what that leads to for all of us. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jay and Isaac. So grateful for you. <laughs>